This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. Tom Reaney, host of Jazz on a Mode here on New England Public Media. And for our Jazz Beat podcast series, I'm speaking with Joe Farnsworth, the New York-based drummer who's a South Hadley, Massachusetts native. Joe comes from a musical family in these parts and has been one of the most in-demand figures at the drums for, for well close to 30 years now on the New York scene. And Joe has a new release. It's one of only a handful or so that Joe has made as a leader, but this one Uh, is a beauty. It's called Time to Swing, and it's on Smoke Sessions Records, and uh, it features Wynton Marsalis, who only rarely makes appearances as a sideman, Kenny Barron, the great uh, pianist we might think of as the dean of jazz piano, and the great Peter Washington on bass. And Joe's recording has garnered a lot of attention, a nice review in Jazz Times magazine. And uh, in addition to the great music on the album, it features a brilliant liner note essay by the veteran drummer Billy Hart, whose credits include Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and just about every major name in jazz over the past 40 years. So, Joe, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Jazz on the Mode and to uh, offer you just a simple congratulations on this uh, beautiful achievement in Time to Swing. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me. I, I feel like this is the, the epic of uh, apex of my career is to finally be on your show, so I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> Well, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you uh, with us today. And um, tell us just a little bit about your own background here, um, uh, having grown up in the uh, in the Connecticut River Valley and and the musical family that you come from. Well, I grew up in uh, South Valley, Massachusetts, and our, our house is still there. My parents are still alive and well. My my father is uh, still teaching privately lessons, and um, he. Uh, gave us the great gift of music. He's a musician and a band director. And I have four older brothers, David being the oldest. He's the original drummer. And John, uh, trombone saxophone player. Paul used to play some drums. And my brother James. And so we, have, we had um, three bedrooms up there. And I, I, I grew up with uh, my brother David. And he's the drummer. He had a beautiful set of Ludwigs, beautiful uh, Zildjans and... Uh, he would walk off the center of school and he'd point at me and he'd say, don't touch my drums. And right when I see him walking down the street, I'd just jump on the drums and put on uh, either Buddy Rich or uh, Sonny Payne. Wow. I just had the, I would just have the best day all day just playing time, uh, you know, blasting the, uh, the record through a uh, big, like a rock speaker that was like 10 feet tall. Why we had that, I don't know. But you could hear it up the hill, and I would just play all day along with the, uh, with especially those two guys. And uh, my brother John was in his room practicing trombone, and JJ Johnson, and uh, and John Coltrane. And so I'd go in that room and hang out for a little bit and see what he was doing. And then my brother James was, he was a mad transcriber, and he ended up playing with Ray Charles. And he would, 
transcribed Sonny Stitt. Uh, what what's the Eternal Triangle? That oh, record yeah. was Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins. Did he had it all down, note for note? And so I'd go in that room. So Tom, I had like a little mini Fifty uh, Second Street in my uh, on twenty. That's <laughs> actually Twenty Three Hadley Street. So I, I would just hang out all night at these clubs, and then that was it. That's how that's how it started. Beautiful, Joe. Beautiful. And uh, Sonny mm-hmm. Payne, of course, means you were listening to the Count Basie band, right? Oh, Tom, you know it. Uh, Ask me, what are you listening to today? Sonny Payne. If I if I could have seen one person, I mean, I, I, boy, I'd have to say Kenny Clark, but Sonny Payne at Birdland, that would be what I'd want to see. Yeah. That would be the one thing, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Now, um, pocket, shiny stockings, uh, classic. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sonny Payne with Basie. Um, you got into uh, now. You're talking about being a real young kid. Uh, uh, jumping on your brother David's drums and uh, digging on Sonny Payne and Buddy Rich. Uh, your father, um, uh, as I understand it, uh, connected you with Alan Dawson in Boston for lessons when you were very young. Yes. Uh, we moved to um, for two years to Indonesia, oh. and my parents taught over there, and so I, I was the only one that went with them. And we would stop off in Tokyo, and, of course, there was records there for some reason you couldn't get anywhere else. And uh, this is long before the internet, long before all this stuff where you could just order, order things, or you, mm-hmm. you know. And so, my brothers had me pick up uh, uh, something that um, some John Coltrane live in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And I also been listening to Weather Report this time, and I bought a record there. Uh, the record I was listening to was eight thirties, but a more you know commercial than than earlier stuff, but great record. Mm-hmm. And I bought a record called Well Report Live in Tokyo, which is one of their first records, probably 71, mm-hmm. something around there. And uh, and I loved it. And um, so when I went back through Tokyo, I bought Miles Davis in Tokyo, oh, yeah. thinking mm-hmm. in my eighth grade mind that I would sound like Well Report because it was live in Tokyo. <laughs> but when I put it on, I heard this drummer, which I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it was Tony Williams. Mm-hmm. And it changed my whole life. And then, of course, one of the great things about records and seeing liner notes and the personnel, you say, "Oh, that's Tony Williams." And then now you're on a you're on a journey to discover what where else he played, what other records he played with, who he played with, mm-hmm. Jackie McLean, and blah blah blah. And I found out that he'd studied with Alan Dawson, and who was alive and well teaching in Boston. So that was the connection. It was really Miles Davis live in Tokyo that 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 got that started. Yeah. Wow. What a great story. What a mm-hmm. dynamite story from live in right. Tokyo. And that's the Miles mm-hmm. band that had Sam Rivers on it for a minute. 
another Bostonian, if I remember uh, correctly. Very good memory. Yes, it is. So you you got back home, uh, and you're in the eighth or ninth grade by this time, and connecting with Alan Dawson on your own. Yes. uh, Well, we we got his number, and uh, we we started studied out there probably in eighty four, my sophomore year in high school, and Mm -hmm. so we did that for uh, two or three years before I went off to college. So your dad was driving you down the Mass Pike once a week or something like that. Uh, Once every two weeks. Yes. Wow. I could tell you the lessons were uh, unbelievable. I, I still have tapes of them, and um, it, it was amazing that he, I'm guessing he probably had 10 lessons a day, and it was strict 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. It wasn't 10.05 as <laughs> you get down there, and there was no, like, hey, Joe, how was your day today? Now, I'm young, so maybe he treated me differently than, say, someone in college, but just from my perspective, there was no sort of personal, like, hey, well, how, well, how are you feeling about this? It was just... Here's his lesson, and we we would sit like almost knee to knee, with a pad between us, and we we go through the two rudiments of the every of the what he assigned me, mm-hmm. and and then we go to the next thing, which was the the Ted Reed syncopation book, and if I did well, I could get over to the drum set, which was like a, looked like a candy store over there, <laughs> and I would say I did well probably three times out of three years to get wow. on the drum set. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So. Like, I was talking to Gene Jackson the other day, uh, mm-hmm. texting, he's like, I wish I was a better student from Alan Dawson, but see, now I am, because I remember exactly what he said to me. Mm-hmm. Now, Alan and Dawson, so, yeah. was Alan teaching at Berkeley as well? Not at this point. It was strictly from his house. Wow. And it was he in Lexington? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, Alan, uh, we know sort of best in the jazz world for his work with Booker Irvin and and uh, and uh, Jackie Byard, and later on with Barry Harris and others. Uh, it was uh, and and I think it was Don Schlitten who who liked to bring in Alan Dawson on sessions he made for Prestige and Cobblestone and right. labels like that. But um, uh, not a household name necessarily in the jazz world, but certainly I mean among musicians, one of the most esteemed uh, drummers and and a master, and obviously a, a good taskmaster for you. Uh, Definitely, I think he I think he had a calling. Of teaching uh, mm-hmm. and and doing that and spent a lot of time in Boston. I mean, well, probably the rest of his life there. Yep. So maybe it wasn't like one of the in guys, like let's say Art Blakey in, in New York City or something. But everyone knew of him, and you could see him on YouTube with Sonny Rollins, and like you said, Booker Irving, Jackie Byard, that sort of thing.
And uh, I guess a lot of people that went through Boston would have used them. And I was glad to know that when they did the 100 Gold Singers that Harold Mayburn started, uh, was with them. The, the rhythm section would have been, well, there's 10 piano players. Yep. And the bass was Bob Cranshaw and Alan Dawson. And he loved, Harold and him were the only ones that would wake up like at 5 in the morning over in Japan <laughs> and go on these brisk, hour-long walks. And he said, he said, and Harold fancies himself as the fastest walker in the world. But he said Alan would keep up with him. So wow. they, those two had a friendship. So that made, it was good for me to hear that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you went from South Hadley to, where was it, uh, uh, William Patterson or uh, uh, the New York area? Yes, I went to William Patterson College under the direction of uh, Rufus Reed. Yeah, the bassist Rufus Reed. Mm-hmm. And who did and you? that's where we met the great Harold Mayburn there. Oh yes, and that's that. That was the that that was the main. He was the guy. Right. Harold, uh, in the times that I saw him, always seemed to have a real gift of mentorship of um, of being sort of the presiding patriarchal figure on the bandstand who was giving a huge amount of love and support uh, to uh, to the players. Of course, you were among them, and Eric Alexander and others whom I would see with. Harold Mayburn, was he like that um, in the classroom, too? Tom, I, I, I kept telling these people, like, later in life, like, uh, well, anyone that had a jazz uh, uh, college or, like, that you should have Harold Mayburn. It, it, the, as much as he loves playing, he loved passing on the knowledge to other people. Mm-hmm. So if you did a uh, jazz clinic in Stanford or you went down to uh, University of Central Florida, we bossed down there, you couldn't stop him from talking. <laughs> and so, like, you know, okay, so the basket class is 10 to 11.30, and so 11.30 is done, and now he's just getting started. He hasn't <laughs> even sweated yet. And now, and so then after the class, he's out the hallway oh. singing uh, the melody to Dahoud, or uh, <laughs> Pick Yourself Up, and, and, he, and he'd show the kids how he could sing it in key. Or then he'd go out and sing uh, John Coltrane's solo on Blue Train. Wow. And then you talk about uh, teaching Phineas Newborn about Dahoud, you know? Yes. And it's just, uh, it, it wouldn't stop. The thing about him is that, and he, we do this all over the world, let's say we went to Ronnie Scott's where the set is only 45 minutes. Over in London? He, he could, yes. He could talk about Phineas Newborn or Ahmad Jamal for 25 minutes. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it, was, it was all about other people. about him most one of the things is that he brought us back to like 1955 you know like i felt like i was there (laughs) you know when it it, it, hanging out late at night he said he'd do a gig in chicago and play from 8 to 12 and then he'd go on see ahmad jamal's last step from one to two and then there was a late night session from four no it wasn't even late night i guess they'd call four 
the seven. Wow. And then and then they have the the waffle set from <laughs> ten to one. After I said, "How's that possible? How cheap is when did you sleep?" He says, "Boy, I'm telling you, we didn't sleep." I said, "But you had to have slept sometimes." Said, Boy, listen to me, we didn't sleep. Wow. And it was just, but he put you right there. It's, it's amazing that you know I miss him terribly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have to say, you know, the whole. NEA thing is uh, it bothered me. It, it didn't. Bother, it, I, it, he said it didn't bother him. The Jazz Master thing that he wasn't after. Forget about the millions of records he's on. Mm-hmm. The, the the amount of love he gave the students around the world. Mm-hmm. That I mean that uh, he wasn't acknowledged as an NEA Jazz Master. I mean he was acknowledged as a master amongst the musicians and guys like you. And uh, but I mean it's. I don't know. I don't know, Tom. It's that's uh, upsetting to this day. I've noticed, Joe, that um, over the past few months, maybe the COVID, you know, lockdown has inspired you a bit. But uh, you've been writing um, posts on. I see them on Facebook mostly, but some beautiful, mm-hmm. um, powerful, um, uh, really swinging um, uh, uh, recollections of your own about Harold Mayburn and others and. Um, and so I just want to go back and call a couple of names that have really stood out in what you've said lately. And one is the tenor saxophonist Junior Cook. Tell us a little, little bit about him. Well, I uh, got the gig at Augie's, which was is was is the same building as Smoke up on the, the Broadway. They used to, yes, Upper uh, Upper West Side Broadway. So yeah. it's Smoke Jazz Club used to be Augie's, and Jesse Davis played there first. The great Jesse Davis, yep. and uh, it didn't pay anything. He just passed the hat, mm-hmm. and so he left. And I happened to be standing right there, and he says, "Ah, oh, you take over." And so I was playing there, and immediately it gave me the opportunity. It's like I want to, I want to start playing with some of the greats, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just the junior was the guy, and I went down to Sweet Basil to see him. He was a special guest with Matt Adderley, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked him to play, and he. Sh- came up there the next week. I'm playing there every Friday and Saturday night. And he came up the next week and played uh, on a misty night. And then he packed up his horn and left. I said, well, I guess that didn't go well. (laughs) You know, uh, he called me up. He says, what time's the sets tomorrow? I said, 10, 12, and 2. He says, okay, I'll see you at midnight. He never made the first set. Mm -hmm. And and then he started coming in there. And immediately we went from like... uh, single A ball to the major leagues and one fell swoop. my age, guys from college, we just moved to New York, and with him there, he was the original Good Shepherd, the person that directed us out of this, you know, wilderness and darkness, and he brought us into this, he showed us this light that 
I mean, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know existed. You could hear him on Horace Silver records, mm-hmm. but when you see him live and actually talk to him, and he's telling you to play, say there's five horn players up there with him, and we're playing on a misty night, mm-hmm. Tad Damron, and he says, okay, Farnsworth, I want you to play a two beat feel for the first two choruses of each soloist. <laughs> and see, I'm like, you know, I'll talk about patience and like and arranging. And, and all the stuff that you learned from Horace, he was telling us, he was showing us, you know, what he learned. Mm-hmm. And that was the first, well, I shouldn't say the first, I, I, uh, but that was a tremendous lesson. And he would sit and talk to us during the breaks. But uh, amazing mentor, amazing. And then since he was there, since it was like a college dive bar, because Junior sure. Cook was mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Um, guys like Donald Byrd, Art Taylor, uh, the great Joe Harris from Pittsburgh, they would come in in this dive bar to see him play and then invariably to see us play. And then, we, you know, it, it gave a, a stamp of approval because he was there. Sure. If he wasn't there, those guys wouldn't be there. Right. Now, when you first introduced yourself to Junior down at Sweet Basil, did he know who you were? Not at all. Nothing. So he came up kind of like on your good word to Augie's all the way uptown for... Uh... To sit in, huh? Yes. And I have to tell you a story before I forget. He introduced me to Cecil Payne. So now there's two de- generations of players right there, Junior Cook and the great Cecil Payne, who is the original bebop baritone player with Dizzy Gillespie. Sure. And, Tom, I saw the greatest thing I ever saw in music outside of maybe the first night I saw Roy Haynes. Mm. <laughs> I was out down at Condon's, and Junior Cook had a group there with Connie Kay. Percy Heath, and the great Hugh Lawson on piano from Detroit. Mm -hmm. And Cecil Payne was the special guest. Now, you'd think, Junior, Cecil Payne must have been, I'm guessing, 18 years older than Junior, probably. Mm -hmm. So different generation. So it was just nice to see that. Mm -hmm. And Cecil was a little older and couldn't see very well, but Junior would play his stuff. And after his solo, Cecil would stand off the side, and Junior reached over and, and grabbed uh, Cecil's shoulder and led him to the mic oh. with this, this beautiful smile. They're both beautiful smiles. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it just struck me so hard, the, the love he had for Cecil Payne. And I, I, I would never have known that growing up in, you know, in college. You don't see those sort of things. You're just practicing. Sure. Well, I saw that, the love of another uh, musician and the respect and reverence he had for Cecil. That that was the great. That was probably the greatest thing I ever saw on the bandstand. Mm-hmm. And there you're talking about the early to mid 1990s, right? This would have been 91, yes, yeah, 92. Yeah, because I, uh, one of the first times I saw you was up here, when you and Eric Alexander came up with Cecil uh, on the band, and I think Mabes was with you too. I'm not mm-hmm. certain of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, you mentioned going from single A to the majors uh, with Junior sitting in with you at Augie's. And mm-hmm. it brings to mind that um, the last time I remember seeing Junior Cook was October 1st of 88. It was game one of the World Series with wow. Eckersley on the mound against Kirk Gibson, one of the most famous walk-off home runs in baseball history. In fact, Eckersley coined the term walk-off to describe wow. that, uh, that home run. And I was over at the network in uh, Mason Square in Springfield where Junior Cook and Mickey Tucker had come up. 
and they were there with Paul Brown and uh, Steve McCraven, and I was hanging that night, and we were kind of dividing our time between the bandstand and the uh, and the little bar with the TV set, so we caught, <laughs> you know, the greatest jazz imaginable and, and also that uh, unforgettable uh, home run. For, uh, <laughs> well, there, there's a great story right there. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, um, and that beautiful story you just related about Junior and Cecil Payne is something that I really feel is kind of like... Um, uh, your music and your vibe is like imbued with that love. And it's one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is coming through in these, what you've been writing on Facebook this summer. And of course, what is coming through on the, uh, on the album time to swing. Why don't you tell us just a little bit more of what has, like you told a story recently about Lou Donaldson and how you mm-hmm. knew whether or not you were passing the grade with, uh, with sweet Lou. <laughs> well, sweet Lou, I owe a lot to sweet Lou because sweet Lou brought me to Chicago where I met the mother of my three children. So oh. I, he, so it's because of him. See, that's how it works, Tom. It's, 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 it's never about yourself. It's, a, it's about these other people that take you places. And now I'm starting, as I'm getting older, and obviously COVID slows you down, you start, mm-hmm. you can reflect on these things. And just how important a little phone call like that is. So, uh, so uh, Papa Lou, uh, I met, and, you know, when you get to New York, he's one of those guys you have to seek out because he's a true New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And it was just no BS in his playing, and there was no cor- he, he never played a corny note, right. or he never played a corny tune. And people would be snapping their fingers, and it's like that's the guy you want to hang out with. That's the guy you want to be around. And uh, unfortunately, I just when you're around someone so much, you know maybe his uh, his drummer Fuku couldn't make it, so he said, "Hey, Farnsworth, because he sees you there, mm-hmm. can you come to Chicago?" And uh, I went, and then I met. Uh, my the mother of my children there, mm-hmm. and I just remember walking down the street with them. Like I was thinking, I was playing, you know, I was oh, I'm doing pretty good, man. Joe Farns was playing with Lou Donaldson, <laughs> Chicago. It's like they say, hey man, I said, you got to learn how to play some funk. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, okay, and he says, and also man, you got you got to get that time a little better, man. Stop playing what I'm playing. He said, "Just, just you know, mind your own business and, and swing, man. You're, you're you're giving me a bad back." Wow. I said, "Okay, well, I don't want. To, I certainly don't want to give you a bad back." Right. So, you know, so I just, I just for after that, I just tried to play. These are the lessons that, that they would give you, man. And that uh, just like one, three little words, and it was nothing personal. Sure. And then, but they stay with you, you know. Sure. And, I mean, uh, you're right. Just talk to them. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say you already kind of have the validation of being on the bandstand with them, uh, so those yeah. those words of advice or what they really need from you must mean uh, must mean the world. Yeah, well, Rufus Reed told us, and it's just stuck with me. He says it's easy to get a gig, but it's very hard to keep it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about uh, a funny thing about Cecil Payne before we move on. When Junior got me on the, they have Jazzmobiles, uh, and the Jazzmobiles a, a truck that goes around to different neighborhoods and plays music for free. Sure. And I think Billy Taylor from up yep. there started it. Mm-hmm. Dave Bailey was a big guy, the drummer, and so we had one in Brooklyn, and with Junior Cook and Cecil Payne was this. Now this is my first intro to Cecil Payne, and I can't believe I'm going to go play with Cecil Payne. I've been listening with Dizzy Gillespie's band. Sure. And uh, how many uh, jazz patterns with Art Taylor and uh, oh, yeah. the Duke Jordan record and uh, oh, so many records. And, uh, and so he was the first guy there. I said, holy cow. He, he looked like a, 
it just it, it just seemed like a I could I like an angel or something. <laughs> it just seemed so big and like there was a glow about him. <laughs> and I'm in Brooklyn first off because I never left Manhattan. So this, <laughs> and I went up to him, oh, Mr. Payne. Uh, my name is Joe Farnsworth. I must have slurred my words or something. He's like, you're a photographer. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know what he would say. I'm like, I'd I, I be like, back away, back away. Don't let him get mad at you. So, mm-hmm. so then we set up the drums and we're playing the tune. And then he looks at Junior and looks at behind by me. He's smiling. He says, he says, damn, he sounds good for a photographer. <laughs> that venue in brooklyn it was just a jazz mobile on the street oh yeah, yeah. And, you know right. they pull up sure. with the truck sure. and they, yep. I, I don't know where it was so it was, yeah, yeah. No. it was just some neighborhood yeah yeah i caught jazz mobile at times in harlem uh 135th street that area sometimes on the street sometimes in a ps uh in harlem but uh, yeah billy taylor and others got that off the ground back in the 60s and that's cool that you connected with it uh let's see some yes. pain Joe, there's so much uh, that your career has connected with and encompassed. Um, uh, it's just extraordinary, and it's, uh, you know, it's a point of pride for us here in this area to know that Hadley Joe is one of the great masters today and <laughs> so in demand and, and all of that. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about One for All, which is a, a collective uh, ensemble of players of your generation, your age group, your peers, and, and how that got off the ground and where it stands today. Uh, yeah, it's uh, easy. I went to uh, William Patterson College in 1986. 87, Eric Alexander uh, arrived from after a year at University of Indiana. Yep. And he was amazing, like uh, as Harold Mayburn says, an A-plus, an A-plus, plus student. <laughs> so plus. he was playing, he's just one of those guys that came out firing. And um, so we immediately had a friendship and, and moved to New York together. So we're playing together. And then, you know, uh, uh, Augie's opened up. And uh, we had a friend, uh, Jim Rotunni, the trumpet player. Mm-hmm. He went to school at North Texas State with my brother James. And James was always talking about him. This is back probably 84, 85, 86, 84, 85. James went to North Texas State. Mm-hmm. And I was raving about this trumpet player. So then I put those two together. And they immediately clicked. And they, uh, Jim would come out to, like, William Patterson play, like, $5 gigs in uh, Paris, New Jersey at the Casa Montego every Thursday night. And then you get to New York, 
we were playing, and then、uh, I did it. I met this trombone player from the University of Hart, and Antoine Roney, the saxophone player, was talking about this trombone player. We went down to see him with、um, Art Blakey,、yeah. and it was at Sweet Basil's. It was Steve Davis. And, you know, same thing. We loved baseball. We had the same sort of feelings about stuff. He loved J.J. Johnson, and of course, Jackie McLean, and being from the same neighborhood. And、uh, so I said, hey, why don't we have these little gigs? Why don't you come down and play with us? So, the, so now I got him in there, and so the, the, the three of them was like a magical front line.、Yeah. They sounded beautiful together. And so we just played gigs. Up there, there was no piano. And、so, we needed to take that next step, and、uh, we were thinking about piano players. And we, I had a gig with Brian Lynch once, one of my first gigs, and、uh, David Hazeltine was playing with them. David Hazeltine and Lynch grew up in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Milwaukee. So then I said, I said, so me, I said, Eric, let's do a gig with this guy. He seems kind of, you know, cool. And then we did a gig, and we said, that's the guy. And,、uh, and Dave brought a lot, you know,、uh, I would say maturity to the group. Because、uh, we were pretty young and restless then. <laughs> and he brought a, a, a very keen sense of arranging things.、Yes. So it was a, a, a really a great match. And、uh, we did a lot of record dates. And it was hard to get gigs because there were six of us. And,、um, but we just, you know, since we're all friends, it's always going to be there. So、um, yeah, that's, right now it's kind of, I wouldn't say doormat, but、uh, it's just, you know, a lot of people are trying to economize. So you. They might get Eric Alexander to come as a solo or use a local rhythm section, or they might get me and Eric or something,、sure. or Dave might do it. It's, it's hard to get all six together because no one wants to pay for flights and all that stuff.、Mm-hmm. But we're, you know, we, we remain great friends, so it's always going to be there. You're bringing me back, to, awesome. you're bringing me back to my own memory. I introduced you guys at Newport about two or three years ago.、Um, Right. And I think it was somebody on the band's birthday, Rotundi or, or Eric. No, I think it was Eric's birthday. He, does、yeah. he have an August birthday? He sure does. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a great gig. You brought me yeah, in. That's great. You, you made me introduce you guys with Lynch at、uh, Augie's way back in the day.、Um, wow. Yeah, yeah <laughs> back, back in the 90s sometime. But, um, um, now, Joe, you were on.、Uh, Winton Marsalis is on. On Time to Swing,、um, mm-hmm. which I have to say, you know, is no small achievement to have、mm-hmm. Winton on your band. But、um, I first heard you on Winton's band years ago on a great、uh, record called Live at the House of Tribes.、Uh, that's still one of my favorite Marcellus albums. It's just a great blowing date. And、uh, is that where you began a, a, an association with Winton?、Uh, yes.、Um, funny enough, before that, I did, I, 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 Tom, I can't tell you why. I did like the auditions for Juilliard.、Yep. Uh, like I was in the trio where, and I brought these two guys from the East Village, Duke Clemens, and a、uh, piano player, and uh, Rich, uh, Richard Clemens.、Oh, Duke Clemens is a bass player. Richard Clemens is a piano player. I can't tell you why they hired me.、Mm-hmm. And I can't even tell you why I, I hired these guys, but we went, we went over there. And that was my very first introduction to him. And, that, and, and that, that, that was a gig at Juilliard where you were like a, a trio that, that accompanied、uh, auditioning students. Yeah. Is that what you mean? So that's yeah, the first、yeah. time facing him. And then,、uh, and then maybe a year later, he called me up 
and said, hey, man, you want to make this gig in the House of Tribes? It's like it was a benefit for the club. House of Tribes is in the East Village somewhere. Yep. And he plays there once or twice a year to raise money. And I think there's like artists and poetry and mm-hmm. paintings there. It's a beautiful little, I'm not a club or whatever. It's a, yeah, House of Tribes, I guess. And then, um, but funny was that he said he, 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 went on, uh, he went on Charlie Rose the next night. And he was telling the story. He said, tell me about House of Tribes. And when says, yeah, I got this new drummer I really like. The reason why I hired him, because everyone said he couldn't play bull dung. And so, <laughs> like, and so everyone was saying that to me. So I, I, so I knew that he must be able to play. <laughs> and so he hired me because that, of that very reason. And I showed so, up there. Hmm. I'm wearing my suit. And it was a, an immediate connection. <laughs> That is it. People love that record. It's a great record. I, so I would throughout the years and say we got to hit House of Tribes Part Two, but that's never happened. Uh, well, I guess this is kind of uh, House of Tribes' time to swing. Right. Well, House of Tribes has got uh, 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 Charlie Parker. I think there's Donna Lee and uh, and um, and Monk uh, uh, and uh, and uh, Green Chimneys and Just yes. Friends, and it's a real yeah. blowing session and. But yep. but it but it concludes with second line that uh, you know the New Orleans uh, style. What, what's it like to play uh, New Orleans style for a minute? Um, Tom, I wish I could, I wish I could do it better. And uh, you know it's one of those things where people say sometimes it, when you play when you play that when you're not from there, it's called like third line. Cause <laughs> you're not really in the trenches. And so I I I I, I shy away from it because I. I there's people that really do it, and um, the only thing I could, the only thing I think about or I try to think about inspires me is Idris Muhammad, the drummer oh, yeah. mm-hmm. from down there, who I met with Lou Donaldson at the Vanguard. Boogaloo. And he sat next mm-hmm. to, yeah, and he talked, and he talked to me about um, when he was a kid playing in the marching band or you know like funeral processions, and he was the bass drummer, mm-hmm. and he said everything starts with the bass drum. And so, and you play the drums from the bottom up. So that's how I, I was. I was thinking. I would think of him when I do something like that. Right. You mentioned that third line thing. You're reminding me of when I would try to interest Winton in going to 
a, a, a restaurant up in this area to eat Creole and Cajun food and it'd say, no, 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 man. I don't, yeah. I don't touch that stuff outside of home, you know? Yeah, well, Tom, you, you, you told it better than I could tell it. That's very, very true. Very true. But, you know, like ever since then, you know, the way he plays the trumpet, and the, the attacking and the phrasing mm-hmm. is, is just how I love to play the cymbal. Mm-hmm. It's like a connection there. Mm-hmm. This was always with that connection, and he went his way. And it wasn't until he hired me a couple of things for the big band that uh, play the music of Bunk. Yep. And uh, I thought it would be semi-easy. I was thinking, well, Thelonious Monk, Town Hall, Art Taylor on drums. <laughs> Art Taylor didn't read very well, and he, we remember talking about that record. He was a little nervous, and and, and Monk was like, "Just swing, man." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be inspired by the Ghost of AT and play." And but this Monk music was way different than that Monk. It was like all arranged by these young guys mm-hmm. that had the kitchen sink in there. <laughs> right. So I was a nervous wreck, man. <laughs> and then, well, we did three nights, and then we he got me on this movie, The uh, Motherless Brooklyn. Oh yeah. Oh. And so we did the soundtrack for that movie, and I was actually in the movie with Jerry Walden, Russell Hall, and Isaiah Thompson. And uh, we were, like, right in the middle of the movie. So, that, I mean, it was a – he threw me that thing. That was great. So as we were doing, like, some premier parties, we are just playing, like, one or two tunes. I've always had this chip in my – I was holding on to. It was like, I want to make a record date. I was, uh, I've been waiting, like, 20 years for the right time. Mm-hmm. I want to make a record date with Tim on it. It's the only thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't record anything else. And I just waited, 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 waited until the right moment. And after the party, we're walking back. I said, hey, man, can you make a record date with me? He said, I'll do anything for you. And then now I just needed to find a record company to do it. But mm-hmm. I waited a long time for that. And I didn't want to record just anything. I wanted to record with him. If he would have said no, then I wouldn't. Rec- I wouldn't have recorded. But I didn't want, want to record anything, you know. It's amazing how things happen, Tom, and, and you know this well yourself. I, I was making these videos about jazz masters, and I started with Billy Higgins, and I went to Harold Mayburn, and then I went to uh, Max Roach, Roy Haynes, Art Taylor. And so I'm doing, and, so, and, and the more I get involved in it, the more I'm calling people. Man, can you believe, because uh, of this COVID stuff, I was able to talk to people I'd never met before, like Steve Gadd mm-hmm. and all, like uh, all sorts of people, Roy McCurdy, who I kind of mm-hmm. knew. This a, a bunch of uh, great conversations. Then for the Mac, um, the Jimmy Cobbs, Max Roach, I'm sorry. I said, I've got to call Billy Hart, who I, I've known for many years, but that we're not the closest of friends, but I've known him. Mm-hmm. And I call him up and I was immediately struck by 
the way he spoke about music is the way he plays the drums. And it's 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 its own entity. It's it's not it's not the same line as other things like uh, Art Taylor or something like that. It was a very unique way. And he plays drums that way. Mm-hmm. I was struck by his perspective on the drums and what he's seen with his own eyes. Like playing a drum battle with Al Foster, Philly Joe Jones, Billy did in the late '60s with Max Roach and Papa Joe Jones as the MC. Oh, wow. But the way he described it. And so when I had my liner notes and they were, and they were talking about it, I said, Billy Hart. It was just immediately someone I knew, someone that knows about the music, and someone that has a, a great perspective. I mean, who, who, what, what, what would be better than Billy Hart doing your liner notes? No, uh, it, you, you've, it, it's, it's a masterstroke. And, um, and, and if I was teaching a jazz history class today, I think I would begin by having the students read that liner note right. essay. I mean, it's the closest feel I've had in a long time to what I would call like jazz truth or, 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 or jazz philosophy in a way. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Hart even calls you a philosopher of rhythm. So if mm. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you could tell us just a little bit more about what your philosophy might be of, uh, of the music, of life, of rhythm, uh, it would be a nice way to kind of wrap up uh, this uh, very nice conversation. Well, I go, back to, uh, I go back to one of my first gigs with Junior Cook out in Brooklyn. And, and Mickey Tucker was there. Mm. And uh, we're playing. And back then, I, I just started playing with Benny Golston. I would ask these guys, what can I do? What can I do? What should, what should I do? Is it too loud? Is it too soft? Is it, is it rushing? Is it not? And they're like, stop bugging it. Stop bugging me. Stop bugging <laughs> me. Just play. Yeah. You know, but it was after every set. And then one set, we, we, we just got done with Junior Cook. And um, the jukebox comes on, and it's, it's Miles Davis walking. But the one with Kenny Clark and J.J. Johnson. Yep. And Junior comes over to me. And he's always wearing sunglasses, and he never took off the sunglasses. Right. He took off the sunglasses. Says, so "That's what I want. That's all any of us any of us want." And it was it was the, the the time that Kenny Clark was playing on the cymbal. play the symbol that, that helps support other people and play good. You know, support them. Harold Mayburn says, don't play with me, play for me. You know, and, and like, uh, to wrap it up, I guess, the time to swing comes from when like, it's like 10 minutes, five minutes before the gig, and you're in the back room, and I equate it to like, you know, when the Chicago Bulls came out to the introductions at that oh, yeah. fanfare. Yeah. And so you get really revved up. 
Well, I get revved up right before you play, and you know Harold Bay was like, "All right, man, let's swing hard now." Or you know, and then George Cole said, "Come on, boys, time to hit. It's time to hit." And then when I was at, with Wynn Marcellus, we, we were about to play. I said, "All right, man, it's time to swing. Enough, enough talking. You know, mm-hmm. time to swing." And that feeling of, of 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 going up there and swinging with other people unselfishly, and trying to make it feel good. And I always go back to that Miles Davis walking and Junior Cook. Oh yeah, so beautiful, Tom. I could I could be like Ernie Banks. Let's play too. We could talk for four hours, man. I hear you, Joe. And and and, <laughs> and let's do it again. Let's do it again. But for now, um, hey. I, I, I'm going to say it's just time to move on. But what a beautiful way to yes. kind of summarize time, support, and feel good. Uh, yeah, uh, rhythm philosopher. So, um, and I love the baseball illusions too, Joe. Of course, but. Uh, uh, so thanks. Uh, congratulations on time to swing, and uh, and let's uh, keep in touch. Well, Tom, I, I talk about the good shepherds, the people that are out there doing great things and helping others, and and you've been doing that for many years. My my family loves you. I love you. People down here and up there love you. You're a godsend for music up there. So God bless you. Thank you so much, Joe. Okay, good day to you, brother. Thank you, Tom. You bet. Ciao.